this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Barry Grass, an essayist with a powerful new collection of linked essays called Hall of Waters. Grass's aim is nothing less than to demythologize the American Midwest. Grass wants us to see something like the true history of the land and the culture from which the Midwest arose, one built on systemic racism, exploitation, marginalization, and violence. At the same time, Grass tries to reckon with what it meant for them to grow up, as Grass puts it, queer and trans in such a toxic environment. The result is a book that's dazzling in its variety and steadfast in its vision, to see clearly how the white dominant culture of the Midwest obscures the land to which it laid claim and the nature of who and what it is, all in the hope of a clearer and truer vision of who we are and how we might, in the end, be accountable to ourselves and one another. Barry Grass, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm really grateful for, for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's just wonderful to have a chance to talk to you. And you have this new book out, Hall of Waters. And it's it's such a fascinating and multidimensional book um, that one of the things I'm excited about doing today is is giving readers all kinds of entry points or or you know turning it over in the light to show all of the different ways that it shines. And I'm wondering if you could just introduce us to the book by way of its title, um, because this is fascinating in and of itself. Um, So what is the Hall of Waters? The Hall of Waters is a building in my hometown of Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Excelsior Springs is like 30, 35 minutes north of Kansas City, Missouri, and it's It was founded because there's a lot of mineral water springs in the area. Um, At at the town's peak, there were over 40 commercial mineral water springs in operation with like a spa or like a bottling facility, something. Um, And so the whole town's economy and like reason for being was around its mineral water. The hall of waters is... Well, now it's City Hall for, for Excelsior Springs. It's a town of 10 to 11,000 people. Um, it's this beautiful Art Deco building. It was 
it was built in the 1930s with WPA money um, during the, the New Deal and such. And it's it's unlike anything else in in the town, certainly. Um, a large multi-floor art deco structure. There's these like motifs in in bronze of like Mayan water gods. There's a lot of stained glass. And the building used to have a large swimming pool. It used to have um, a large facility for water spa treatments. Um, and it used to have the world's longest water bar, which is a weird designation, longest. Uh, it's, it's just a very large bar setting. And you could go there and sample many of the different chemical compositions of mineral water. Get your uh, sulfosaline water or your magnesium phosphate water or or what have you, um, and then buy bottles to take home with you. So the Hall of Waters as a building like looms kind of large for me when I think of my hometown. And this book is about the experience of, of my hometown and more broadly the American Midwest because it's a building that is you cannot remove it from the town's history and it's been repurposed now since there really isn't a mineral water economy in Excelsior Springs anymore um, for reasons we may get into later. Uh, it's now City Hall. It's now where the municipal court is. The police station is next door. So it's, it's a strange building that just takes on new contexts as older the town gets. And one of the things you do in the book is you use it as this this focal point for understanding the way in which Excelsior has has created its own mythology, its own white colonialist mythology, um, and appropriated and buried the histories that it it doesn't want to acknowledge. Right? You in one place you describe yourself your project as sort of demythologizing the Midwest. So how, to kind of take us into the book, how does your approach to thinking about the Hall of Waters begin to open up these other possibilities of seeing um, not only what's happening, you know, in the town and its official history, but really in the Midwest and the, the way that the Midwest has been constructed in the dominant American imagination? Yeah, uh, yeah. Demythologize is the word I've been I've been using at readings and with interviews to describe what I want to do because the the dynamic of mythologizing a certain ethos in particularly small town Midwestern America is not unique to Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Um, but there's because the the history of this town, which was only founded in the late 1800s. Um, so like relatively recently, uh, it, there was a little boom industry there, a boom tourist industry, and then and then that industry like sort of fell apart, and the town is has been struggling to figure out where it stands since that point. I think it's a good place to examine this dynamic of the way that Midwestern American whiteness, particularly whiteness in general, creates narratives about itself and how it operates in the world and seeks to justify and sustain those narratives at the expense and exclusion of other narratives. 
So for example, the Hall of Waters building, one thing I didn't mention about it a few minutes ago is that it also has, um, I think like museum like content. There is an official Excelsior Springs town museum, but the Hall of Waters does have its own like archival materials and exhibits that you can see. And if you go there, you do not really learn about the history of indigeneity in the area. Uh, you don't learn about the that the waters here were almost surely uh, used for probably centuries by by the Osage and the Missouri and the Sac and Fox Nation. That is just growing up in that town. In school, it's never taught. And the official like tourism brochures and videos and stuff produced by the by the city doesn't mention it. And the same goes with African American history. Uh, most of the I shouldn't say most, but many significant early spa owners in town and spa operators were black. And the hotel that accommodated Black tourists and Black workers and Black families in town is never talked about. There's no monument. And on field trips, as, as kids growing up in, in school, we'd be taken to the Elms Hotel and the Oaks Hotel and, and told about the history of certain buildings downtown. And all of the buildings related to Black history in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, just totally, totally ignored. Um, whether it be churches, schools, uh, businesses. Excelsior Springs, Missouri had the state of Missouri's first Negro business league. There's a rich amount of Black history in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, and most of the residents would never know. So what I wanted to do with this book was write honestly about place. Um, and I was trying to figure out really my relationship with the town and what are the ways in which someone may be able to leave where they grew up, but still carry some of that place with them for better or worse. And so I was essaying about my hometown to try to think and figure all of that out. And I really wanted to write honestly about about what Excelsior Springs is, and that involved doing a lot of research, and resulted in a, a lot of these, a lot of the pieces in this book um, revealing truths that were there, but just the town was not acknowledging in any ready or easy way. Which you very smartly linked to the idea of the springs themselves, right? The, the unconscious or the buried past of the town welling up um, in ways that at least certain populations in the town themselves would not want to take uh, in or account for. Um, and I'm guessing just to bring out this whole other dimension of the book, I mean, I, I, I wonder if listeners right now might be thinking, okay, the Hall of Waters is this rich and deep sort of 
excavation of and understanding of and a saying of place. Um, but you had mentioned a couple of times, just even in talking about Excelsior Springs, growing up as a kid there and going on field trips there. And, and part of what the book does so powerfully is, is places you in that history as someone who had to grow up under it um, and kind of the both direct and indirect violences that that mythology of the town itself and of the Midwest, um, how that came down on you. Yeah, I think that was my initial you know, motivation for writing pieces that started to become this project was thinking about my place in, in that town and what the town was for me, for good and bad, and there was plenty of good. Um, so some of the essays in here that are named after usually springs um, in the town or like water-related sites in the town of Excelsior Springs, my process was to just think about where in the town those, those springs or those buildings uh, are located. And in a truly essayistic way, see what comes to mind. Sometimes my thinking went research heavy from the beginning with a place. Other times I had very strong memories, experiences to draw from. So a lot of this book is lyric memoir based on, based on, okay, I want to write about this spring, not necessarily in an archival way, but just, I want to think about the location. I want to think about the ways in which I moved through that part of town. And something I think about a lot when I was writing this book is the ways in which personal histories are almost never part of like a town narrative unless someone is famous. And I think a lot about the historical register um, because a lot of my research for this book involved reading um, historical site survey forms, um, applications to the, the state of Missouri Department of Natural Resources um, and Department of History and what have you to, to try to get a place on the state historic register. These forms were very particular and I ended up copying those forms for a couple of uh, hermit crab essays in this book. I just kept thinking about what, what we consider worthy of historic merit or record collectively and how that differs from the things that make up or constitute a place of actual culture because those are not the same things all of the time. And so I like this contrast of like my, my memoir content in this book, my personal experiences of survival or grief or joy um, being placed in contrast with, with the archival history material because my experience of living in that town, I can't separate those things. Um, the history of the place and like what it is like for people to live in that place are part of the same story. I think that's beautifully put. And I guess the, the question that I want to ask you, I mean, one of the things that happens in the book is that you're aware of this tension between something like 
the official narrative and the lived experience, the, you know, dominant record of history and the the full existential experience of culture. Um, there's even a really endearing moment where the younger you thinks, well, in terms of Pokemon, I, I might just make it into the official record. Um, so I, what I'm wondering is how you now experience or how you now think about, you know, the younger Barry Grass having done this work of really getting to know the place from which you came. I mean, I can imagine this being something like a fantastic pedagogical experience for most of us. I, I think most of us in dominant white America, I'll, I'll speak for that, right? Don't don't realize the very land on which their, their suburb was built or their apartment building was built or who their neighbors are or what their history is or how their roads got to be where they are and who built them and over what lands were they built. So I, I'm just wondering if you could speak to the experience of of having done this book and, you know, does it create any kind of existential change in, in just how you think about a self moving through the world to have this awareness that's informed by research, that's informed by a hard look at your own personal experience um, brought together in these two registers? I think so. And I actually think a lot of that, that, I'm not sure the the book would look anything like it does if I wasn't already undergoing some of that change beforehand. Uh, so I mean, I agree with you that um, that white America, like part of what solidifies the sociological construct of of whiteness, is pleading a convenient kind of ignorance as to the reality of how we got where we are and very specifically um, in a, in a settler colonial sense, I think it's true that most, most white Americans don't know whose lands they are living on, whether those lands were ceded to the United States government by treaty or not. Um, The history of, indigenous people living on those lands is is something that just most it's not taught to most people and it's something that most people don't care or think of to seek out unfortunately and i had that change in my personal politics before writing the pieces of this book i think i wouldn't have even hall of waters as a book would not exist if i didn't abandon a book project that I had been working on for years. Um, and, and maybe the, like, uh, when, when we had a conversation a number of years ago in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, you and I, I was probably working on my book about Belgian and, and American farmhouse ales, the style of beer that I really love. And it's because of the nature of, of that style of beer, which is historically associated with being brewed on small farms to give the seasonal farm laborers. Um, There's a lot of almost necessary 
romanticizing of the land or exploring the tension of the desire to romanticize the land that was going on in that book. And as my own personal politics became to be more and more informed by an awareness of American settler colonialism, an awareness of my status as a settler, an awareness of indigenous nations and their history of dealing with the U.S. government. It just kind of felt icky to me to be writing about and kind of glorifying farmers or farm brewers who, whose, whose products and whose marketing are positioned on land that's not rightfully theirs, historically or can temporarily. So this experience of, of dropping a book project that I spent years on because it no longer aligned with my politics informed a lot of these initial impulses for me to write about my hometown and the ways that I do in this book, almost as if I was trying to make amends for, for, for what I felt were the writing missteps of, of earlier me. And in the process of writing the book, that that only I'd say that only the change only increased and solidified. Um, I'm fascinated now by I think I think this kind of book could have been written about any town. The waters of Excelsior Springs, Missouri, in my experience in that town, are I think a lovely metaphor for saying what could be said about almost any small midwestern town that is largely white but isn't and never was exclusively white um there's there's histories that aren't being told and there's current culture and current residents in these towns who are black who are south asian who are latinx uh who are contributing greatly to those the culture of those towns and aren't being recognized for it because the the myth of whiteness demands that those people not be seen. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I admire how much surety, or at least, I'm trying to think of it in terms of, I'll start the other way. Mm-hmm. My guess is at the moment that you said to yourself, this book that I've been working on for years and these pages that I've labored over now represent a vision and a view that I'm starting to feel really queasy about. There had to be a hard moment to let those go um, before you move to this place of vision and understanding that you're at there or, or that you're at now. And I'm admiring the fact that you, you took that step and that you saw within what almost seems like an alternative mythology, right? The mythology that's coming up around sort of American 
farming and landscape in a kind of food writing way is is also functioning similarly to the the same sorts of mythologies that are taking place in town hall museums to itself um and that you were able to to break through that mythology which seems kind of much more current um that's taking place and so i guess what i'm wondering is you know you talk about how this book was written from a new place, do you see connections with your earlier artistic self or was it really a, a big rupture? Was it suddenly like, I need to rethink the fundamentals of, of how I put together a book and what it means to position a self in an essay. Um, I think I'm just clarify. Yeah. Uh, things about how to position the self. Um, I, I don't think I was a writer who was careless about, the positionality of the self, but I had a lot to learn and, and always will. One thing I was very careful about with this book, for example, with respect to positionality of the, of the first person of the I, since there is a lot of talk of this book about historical erasure and historical violence, and there is a lot of lyric driven, very personal memoir content from my life. I'm careful to not mix those tones in a way that would be inappropriate. I I employ a lot of a lot of lyric language when talking about my life in this book. But when I'm talking about historical violence and historical erasure, um, particularly that done to black and indigenous persons in the Midwest, the language is very plain because that's not, I didn't experience that violence. I benefit from that violence as a white person, whether I want to or not. And it was important to me to position my, my narrators in this book as not using the violence that in the historical ongoing oppression of persons of color in the Midwest um, it's not my place to apply lyric language because I can't know the feeling of suffering that oppression. And so that's something about positionality that is very cognizant of um, throughout this book. And yeah, I guess, I guess that is the end of, of my answer sure. to that. Yeah. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about why the lyric mode works well for for the personal experience for the the memoir material what is it about lyricism that lends itself to speaking about this yeah i think it's it's because of the you know the strong association with with the lyric eye and subjectivity i i can i have somewhat of a marginalized experience um as as a trans person, as someone who's queer growing up in this town and, and facing certain violence from certain people, particularly within a family construct. Um, so there's oppression there that, and I can like try to use language to help readers to feel some of what that felt like for me. Um, 
using the the lyric mode to to really try to capture capture the feeling of growing up in this culture that is so much about secrecy and so much about constructing these fictive narratives to make things seem other than what they are. So I felt comfortable about allowing readers into the emotions that I felt. But as a matter of positionality, I did not feel comfortable with the idea that I even could allow readers into emotions that I have not felt. So, so the lyric worked, worked to amplify my own subjectivity, provided that I know where my subjectivity begins and ends. Which is one of the big questions. Self and other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Well, you had, you had mentioned earlier that in, in some ways this book couldn't have been read and written and couldn't have been started till you had a, a much more acute understanding of, of place, a much more kind of informed and clear eyed understanding. Um, in one of the interviews at the back of the book, you also say that this is the book that it would have been hard to imagine writing before you had transitioned hormonally. Um, could you speak a little bit about about that change in perspective, about how that put you in a position to write this book in a way that you wouldn't have been able to write it before then? Yeah, I think um, in a practical sense, there has been some, I've experienced some alienation uh, from the town since coming out as trans as opposed to it being like a, a latent thing that I was trying to ignore or not have anyone know about. And I think the it was helpful from a writing sense, one, for me to, to know what it feels like to be a much more self-actualized version of me um, now and can think with some some distance, some emotional distance, some temporal distance with with the me that was living in this town, which was um, a closeted, struggling me. But then there's also this practical sense in which I've lost family members, people, people I know around town, um, whose prejudices uh, lead them to to think that they shouldn't associate with me, or that I'm, you know, a bad person now. And I, it's it's hard to feel like totally safe and welcome in that town. And it's actually been a while since a couple of years, at least, since I visited. Um, and that alienation that I was feeling from my town was another like initial impetus to start writing about the place. A bit of like, maybe a bit of anger, but also a bit of, well, what does this place actually mean to me? Mm -hmm. And you bring in, in order to do that, a kind of kindred spirit. Um, Donald Judd plays an important role in the book. Um, a huge could, role. And could you tell us a little bit about, you know, 
who Donald Judd is or maybe who he is for this book and for you? Yeah. So if listeners don't know Donald Judd, they may have seen pieces of his in in major museums uh, around the world. Um, Donald Judd is he's like the godfather of American minimalist sculpture, though he disliked when the press called him, art critics would call him a minimalist, though he totally was. Um, his sculptures for him were like all about what you can achieve with a precision of, of architecture, of line. Um, he was not a fan of the idea that his sculptures meant anything or had a subjectivity. It was all about the material and the craftsmanship. Um, if, if anyone is aware of Marfa, Texas, um, the hip uh, burgeoning arts town in West Texas, uh, the art scene in Marfa started because of Donald Judd, who uh, bought a lot of land out there, um, opened up galleries, permanent installations, um, and just created a, an arts culture. Um, and Donald Judd is also from Excelsior Springs, Missouri. I think he's by far the most famous person um to be born there and you know he left pretty quickly uh but he came back occasionally to visit his parents and grandparents who lived in the excelsior springs area still and um it was never to my knowledge it was never a publicized thing when he would make visits for someone who is internationally famous and infamous as an artist there's no real recognition of him at the Hall of Water. And it's it's been too many years since I've been to the town's museum. I don't know if there's a section dedicated to him there. But he has such an outsized influence in the art world and practically no influence in town. And that was fascinating to me. And I would love to talk with him about that, except Judd passed in the early 90s. So... I have many, many pieces in this book that are titled after sculptures or works of art by Donald Judd, in which I mean, they're kind of ekphrastic essays that are also epistolary essays. Uh, they're addressed to Donald. I'm trying to write to him, but also about me and also about the work and how all of those things combine when I sit down in front of a Judd piece at a museum or, or if I'm looking at a picture in an art book of a Judd piece. Uh, I was trying to capture everything that was going on, what I wanted to talk with Donald Judd about, uh, what I am seeing in my own subjectivity in his sculpture and what that makes me think about, about our shared town, about my life. And I just really enjoyed what I was getting out of these Judd essays to the point where, you know, the, the book is titled after this building in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, but maybe almost half the book is, is mediated through Donald Judd. It's one of those, like those surprises that you love as a writer where this was not at all what I expected um, to be a major like focal point of the book, but ended up becoming, like half the book. 
I, I think it's beautiful. I think it's it's one of the things that, that literature can do when we start thinking of it not as as texts and signs, but as invocation and evocation and conjuration that mm-hmm. you can suddenly start to have this conversation with Donald Judd, the one you wanted to have. It's still happening and we get to to be a part of it. And that's what makes it so beautiful. So, so you, you described him as a minimalist, um, though he might not see himself as such. One of the things in, in preparing for this interview um, that I've learned is that you've done a lot of thinking about the relationship between gender and genre. And there's certainly some genreic innovations taking place in your book. I'm wondering if you could if you were going to to self-describe um, or maybe in a more Donald Judd way, say what you're not doing um, when somebody calls you a minimalist, how would you describe the artistic sensibility in this book? Um, you know, the hybridity, I think, would be the, the word of our moment. Um, but as somebody who's lived deeply in the different forms that are in here, which are everything from um, architectural and historical inventory forms to poetry, to lyric essays, to things that are more research-based, as you were talking about, um, what is your aesthetic? I, I, I actually hesitate at this juncture in my, in my artistic life to to say anything other than essayist because for me that the form of the essay can, can and does encompass all of those things. Um, there are pieces that look like poems um, and were published by magazines as poems that were drafted and revised under the same essayistic impulses as some of the longer essays in this book. Um, every piece in this book came from a, except for the ones that sort of dump research onto the reader. They come from this truly essayistic standpoint of not knowing what I was going to get myself into or think about. And I think why there's such a mix here is, well, one, it's to, to, to try to be responsible about positionality. But two, um, I think the timing in my life of, of, of sort of self-actualization um, and self-realization, particularly with respect to gender, um, happening around the same time as when I first started uh, really writing this book, resulted in pieces that do not look the same as my prior, my work prior to this. You know, I was working on that, that, that manuscript I abandoned was going to be a 250 to 300 page, like trade book of beer journalism with some memoir content. Uh, most of the essays I'd published prior to this book are, you know, nine, 10, 13, 15 page length essays. And I love going on at length. I love just that taking the the time and the page space to really, really think through something uh, and and dig into material. But there is something about, and maybe just because I wanted to write about multiple places, so many places, uh, 
these essays just ended up being shorter. And it's a pretty small book by page count. I certainly wrote more pieces than ended up in the final the final form of the of the published book. Um, I cut a lot for I guess just the sake of reducing redundancy. Um, and I still don't I still don't have a a solid sense, I think, of what this shift means, or even if this shift is permanent in my writing. But playing with form a bit, um, being open to the forms that came to me, and trying to distill emotional experiences, particularly into shorter forms, was just the instinct that kept popping up when I was writing this book. Um, and I haven't fully intellectualized it. Uh, I don't think it just it just felt right. I want to say you don't have to intellectualize it. <laughs> you know, as an artist, that's not not your job. You're you know that's that's what we're supposed to do out here, doing interviews and writing appreciations <laughs> of what you've managed to do is to intellectualize it and then tell each other where we've fallen short as we celebrate your book. Um, would you be willing to to read a passage from it so we could hear directly a little bit of what it's like to be in the book? I would love to. I think I'm going to read um, a, a piece that is in like the lyric memoir mode. Um, this is a piece that's titled after a water-related site in the town. And I just want to give a content warning that there, there is description of domestic violence in this piece. And there is mention of substance use in this piece, but it's it's neither of which is graphic. But I just wanted to give that heads up for folks listening. This is called Excelsior Springs Bottling Company. There's just a house with a trampoline out front now. They used to bottle enough water here to fill a train car every two days. And now there's a house that looks like my old house. The Midwest is perhaps best defined as a place where domesticity is used as a cover-up. The first time I applied makeup to myself was when mom taught me to use foundation and concealer to mask the bruise from my dad clutching my twig of an arm and tossing me into a wall. The Midwest is perhaps best defined as making the bed. After the divorce... During our custody visits with him, dad was frequently using meth. Having no practical ways to entertain or nurture his two kids, dad would take us into the woods, up the large hills of Excelsior, to search for shiny something, to dig in the dirt. These pica weekends were spent searching for marbles, and dad rattled off marble terminology, telling us how to separate agate marbles from mica marbles, from end-of-days marbles, from glass marbles. He also had us looking for glass bottles. He was especially interested in local glass, from the Pepsi bottling plant, which used to be here, or the mineral water plant, which used to be here. And really, I think of those days with my dad as his terrarium. In those days, his ideas of the land and its history were preserved for him. And I was preserved for him and all of my potential to be the ideal small town Midwestern man that he once thought himself capable of being. 
even now, breasts spilled out and dusky rose lipstick applied, he still has this conception of a son he never really had, as if he's keeping it under glass. Or or maybe under agate, flecked with mica. I could never remember what he tried to teach me about marbles. I could never remember which materials reveal and which materials occlude. A pane of glass can be a false transparency, the scene lying beyond it staged an artifice. The Midwest is perhaps best defined as a museum exhibit. Thank you. It's really a gift to hear it in your voice. Well, Barry, we're just about out of time, but I'm wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now or in what direction your thinking is going. Um, it would be exciting to hear what what you see, what horizons you see opening up having written this book. Right now, things are... <laughs> the folder I have for for drafting writing right now is just, it's in all capital letters and it's titled mom stuff. Uh, I've, I've really like barely written about my mom's passing. Um, she passed away from metastasized breast cancer in 2016. And uh, last summer, I just really began writing about that in earnest. And the writing isn't cohering for me yet. It it might be the case that I end up writing four, like four chapbooks of essayistic or nonfiction content um, because I I'm writing essays about 1990s country music songs. I'm writing. I find that I'm doing research into into turquoise, the stone and the color. I find that I'm. Um, I'm writing about about gardening and I'm excited to see where where this all comes together because I don't know yet but it's really interesting giving myself the freedom to just try to figure out it's complex um, and I think overall the pieces stylistically have been shorter so far but I'm also writing longer essays too um I want to give a plug to the Ander Monson's annual tournament of essays, uh, March March Exness, uh, which is a like an online anthology of, of, of essays that happens every March around the March Madness basket college basketball tournaments. Um, they're usually about music, and they each year takes on a certain theme. For example, this year's anthology. Uh, which starts March 1st, is called March Badness. And all of the essays are about the worst songs that have ever been in like the Billboard Top 10 or Top 50, I think, um, between 1970 and 2000. So I have an essay about Mr. Roboto by the band Styx that is pretty interesting. It's about It's about masks mostly in a lot of different ways. Um, and it felt good to get back into that, that rhythm of just going on for pages and pages and not having quite the, the language, the efficiency of language that lyric writing calls for. Um, so 
I feel like I feel like the writing that I will be doing in, in the near future is uh, I'm very open to whatever comes and I'm not locking myself into certain styles, but rest assured it will be in the essayistic mode. I think one of the hallmarks of the essay is that the essay benefits from not knowing where you're going as opposed to knowing where you're going. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I, I love the the fact that listeners are going to have a chance to go find that tournament and find your essay in it. And and finally, I, I want to say both thanks and uh, to let you know that you have an open invitation for any future work. Um, we'd love it if you came back and talked to us here. I appreciate that. It was a very fun conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Barry. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Barry Grass, author of Hall of Waters, on the New Books Network.